Hello, and welcome to Stern Chats. I'm Daniel Yellen. And I'm Tiffany Lin. And this week on the show, we were joined by Professor Jonathan Haidt. Professor Haidt is the Thomas Cooley Professor of Ethical Leadership at NYU Stern, which is part of the Business and Society program. He is also one of the world's most well-known and leading social psychologists, uh, writing about the topics of happiness and morality and political polarization. And Tiffany and I were lucky enough to talk with him about a little bit of all of those topics, which really made for an interesting conversation. Yeah, Daniel, I know we were so excited about this conversation. We'd been waiting for weeks, and I think it really paid off. Um, Everything from, you know, how he became a professor at Stern, and I think something was really interesting is that, unlike what we kind of see on LinkedIn, it wasn't just some planned out path, and he really talks about that too. And then, of course, topics close to both our hearts, social media and their responsibilities in society right now. Uh, I think something that everyone's going to be really interested in. Yeah, I think that Professor Haidt really shows that there's a lot for us to be worried about when it comes to social media, but there's also a lot of really interesting ideas out there that leave a little bit to be hopeful for. So I think that that was one of the things that I took away from this conversation. And with that, let's go. From New York University Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Jonathan Haidt is the Thomas Cooley Professor of Ethical Leadership at NYU Stern, based out of the Business and Society program. He is also a preeminent social psychologist. Uh, Professor, welcome to Stern Chats. Well, thank you so much, Daniel, and thank you, Tiffany. Yeah, it is great to have you here. I've been looking forward to this conversation for weeks now. Um, So to jump right in, uh, people might have seen you in films like The Social Dilemma, heard bits and pieces of your work on podcasts, or maybe they've read your work in The Atlantic or one of your books. Um, You're very prolific. But for those who may have never senior body of work, or they may only know one piece of it. How would you describe your overarching thesis of what you're trying to study and understand? Mm -hmm. So I'm a social psychologist, and I study morality. Um, That's what I've I've always done since graduate school at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, And I originally studied how morality varies around the world across cultures. But in 2004, the American culture war was getting so bad that I started studying left and right as though they were cultures. And um, in 2011, I uh, came to Stern just for a year, uh, but I really liked it and they liked me. And um, so I began applying moral psychology to business ethics. And that's what I've been doing here at Stern. I I created an organization called ethicalsystems.org. And we try to use behavioral science to help help, um, uh, companies and organizations of all sorts work better and get a better ethical climate uh, rather than relying on compliance and legal approaches, which are inefficient, to say the least. And so you've had a really impressive career, but I was wondering, when did you first realize that social psychology was what you wanted to focus on as a career, or even that it was something you could focus on as a career? 
Well, in college, I, I was a philosophy major, not for any very good reason. I just thought it sounded cool, and I had a kind of a fake existential depression in high school, you know, like a Woody Allen type, oh, there's no meaning to life if there's, you know, if there's no God and if we're all going to die. And so I, I was determined to major in philosophy, but it was actually kind of boring. And I, I took an introductory psychology class just for fun, and it was so great. And so I followed that up with a social psychology class, which was even better. And so uh, when I didn't know what to do with my life after I graduated from college as a philosophy major, um, I worked in computer programming for a while. And uh, then I decided this was 1986 or so, which was the first AI boom. And so I thought, well, you know, I psychology, philosophy, and I'm working in computers, you know, as programming for the government. I thought, well, that, you know, I should go into AI. I should, I should, uh, that would be really cool. And so I started applying to computer science programs. But as I visited them, they seemed really weird. Like the, you know, the, the offices and departments were sort of sterile and I couldn't connect with the people. And just on a whim, I was visiting Penn at the time. My sister was an undergrad there, so I was staying with her and I visited the computer science department. And just on a whim, because I was kind of like not feeling good about this computer science thing, I stopped into the psychology department just to see, well, maybe I can you know, go in cognitive science instead of computer science. Uh, I, I, I stopped in and the place had carpeting and plants and smiling people. And it just, you know, it just felt uh, more human. It's not a very good way to make a decision. It was just, you know, one department in one school. And just by an, an incredible stroke of luck, I had, I just approached a graduate student and said, hey, can you tell me, you know, what, what's it like to be a grad student here? And she said, oh, well, actually, there's the guy you want to talk to. And the director of graduate studies had just walked in and he was walking by and he said, okay, come up to my office. I have 10 minutes. So you know, then that 10 minutes changed my life. It was so clear. He loved what he did. And he was a social psychologist, a wonderful social psychologist named John Sabini. He uh, passed away uh, uh, about 15, 20 years ago. But um, I, there, especially there was a key line, something about how uh, uh, we were talking about a career in psychology. And he said, said like, yeah, you know, nobody goes into this field to, to get rich. We, you know, you, you wouldn't do this if you were in it for the money. And it was just really clear. It was just intrinsic motivation. Uh, his, you know, he had just books everywhere all around his office. And I thought, yeah, th this feels better than, than computer science. And so just, you know, on a whim, I didn't really know what I was doing. I applied to Penn and three other schools in cognitive psychology. I was going to study punning. How do you, how, I was, I sort of sketched out how you would do a computer program in Lisp that would make puns. Um, and, and Penn was the only school that admitted me. So I went there. And then I, the guy I was going to work with, uh, who studied the psychology of humor, didn't actually seem to have much of a sense of humor. And I didn't, you know, it didn't really connect with him. And once again, like kind of on a whim, I had a good conversation with a professor who studied thinking and decision making. And he had a side interest in moral thinking. And I had written my senior essay on free will and determinism, which is like moral philosophy. And so once again, on a whim, I said, okay, I'm going to leave the other guy. And it really was like breaking up with a girlfriend. You know, it was like <laughs> I had this very painful conversation with the, my first advisor and I, you know, took up, took up house with, uh, with uh, Jonathan Barron as a cognitive psychologist at Penn. Um, and then from there, once I was into moral psychology, once again, it felt kind of dry and boring. It was Lawrence Kohlberg who looked at stages of, of, uh, re of how kids reason about justice. Uh, and he was brilliant, and it was kind of interesting, but it was also kind of dry. 
And then I happened to take a course in cultural psychology from an amazing anthropologist named Alan Fisk. And that's when, that was like the scene in The Wizard of Oz where everything goes from black and white to color. Like once I found cultural psychology and I was reading, you know, full length ethnographies, like a full, you know, a book about an Amazonian people or, uh, you know, a, gr a group in Papua New Guinea or, or um, you know, Native Americans and looking at how morality plays out. It's so different in, in, um, in various civilizations. Uh, so once I found that, it was culture and mora it was morality, how it varies by culture and is based especially in the emotions. So that I found by my second or third year of grad school. And from then on, it was like, okay, this is, this is my base. And from this, I can do everything else. And then I never had any of these like, oh, on a whim, I'll t except maybe for coming to Stern. That was kind of like, okay, I'll do business ethics. Um, <laughs> so I, I took a long time explaining this because I'm thinking for, you know, for many of your listeners, uh, they're at inflection points in their careers or they often don't know exactly what they're going to do. And so I just wanted to convey that there's an awful lot of, of luck and chance encounters. And um, I'll also convey that from the time I was a senior in college uh, in 1985, um, through the time, really my second year of grad school, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And for the first few years of that, it was like every minute I was thinking, what am I going to do with my life? What am I going to do? I don't know what to do. What am I going to do? Um, and one thing I did back then was I would talk to my father's friends. So my father was born poor in Brooklyn, and uh, it was the, you know, that cohort of you know, Jewish immigrants that went through the public schools and, and went on to become very successful in business and law and medicine. Um, and... Um, and so I would talk to the men of his generation and most of the stories were like, yeah, you know, I, I didn't know what I was going to do, but then I ran to this guy that I had bunked with in the army and, you know, and he was starting this business and, uh, you know, he said he needed someone to, you know, run some numbers or uh, whatever. So there's so much chance in life. And that's, that's really just what, what I want to convey here. It, it's actually really funny because... That's my advice typically to MBA ones is just to walk into as many corporate presentations as possible because you never know when you're going to like the carpet. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> or who yeah. you're going to talk to. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And yeah, reach out a lot. And uh, yeah, because you never know what conversation is going to either change your thinking or give you uh, an invitation or a leg up. Um, I was curious, how did you then go from kind of cultural and moral uh, psychology and more towards, or I guess in addition to also the positive psychology movement, because you had a chance to see and be part of the birth of that movement. Yes. Um, so, okay, so everything I do is based on morality and the emotions. And the emotion that I picked up as my first emotion to specialize in was the emotion of disgust. Because when you think about sort of, you know, Western, modern Western morality is, there's a big debate in philosophy. Is it all about harm and consequences or is it about rights and justice and, and duties? And those are the two things. It's, you know, uh, uh, consequentialism versus deontology. And, and that fight has been going on for two or 300 years. And then, you know, you read the Hebrew Bible and what are the laws about? Like a lot of them are about rights and justice. There's a lot in there on that and harm. But my God, there's so much about food and hierarchy and, and you know, menstrual taboos, which it turns out most cultures have. And, all the, and, and, you know, there's a whole long section on skin lesions. And you realize, wow, it's like the body is so important in, in you know, in ancient Judaism. 
And you know, then Christianity pushes some of that away, but it comes back, and especially in Catholicism, and then Protestantism pushes it. So it's like, wow, what's going on with the body? And then you read almost any non-Western culture, and there's gonna be a huge amount about the body and morality and, and getting the body ready to approach God. You have to purify yourself physically before you approach holy objects. So that's really the human norm. And the sort of the modern West, Protestants and atheists is really the exception. Um, so anyway, I'm sorry, back to your question. Okay, so the point is, um, disgust was my initial emotion. And uh, I worked with a wonderful general psychologist, Paul Rosen, happened to be at Penn, again, coincidence, the world's foremost expert in the psychology of eating and the emotion of disgust happened to be at Penn. And he was a really funny, wonderful guy. And um, we really hit it off and, and worked together for many years. So we were working on the emotion of disgust. And uh, disgust isn't just a, you know, about germs. Disgust is a sort of a guardian of the temple of the body, so especially the mouth. Disgust really hangs out at the mouth about what we ingest, but it's, it's broader than that. And it goes beyond the body. It actually goes on to, we see many people as disgusting. We see people who are hypocritical or sleazy or, you know, people who are sucking up. Um, we have a, it's not, we're not angry. We're like, oh, that guy is so gross. So that's what I really, that was my first real problem to bite into. Like, okay, so if morality is more than harm and, and justice, if it's all this physical stuff, well, the emotion of disgust is probably, it looks like it's really key. All these norms about purity and pollution that are in most cultures um, have a lot of similarity to the sort of the logic of disgust and contamination. So I was studying disgust as a moral emotion with Paul Rosen. And our theory was um, that all cultures, or most cultures, have a kind of a vertical dimension of social cognition where God or gods are at the top and the devil or demons are at the bottom and the animals are arrayed. You know, some animals are below others, but humans are in the middle, you know, between the demons and the angels. And this way of thinking about up and down is, is the human norm. Most cultures have something like this and modern, the modern West kind of squashes that and ignores it. But implicitly people still do that. And we think about people as being higher or lower. And, um, uh, and I just moved after I got my PhD. I, I spent two years at the University of Chicago, and then I got my first real job at the University of Virginia. And I was reading the writings of Thomas Jefferson. And uh, Jefferson wrote beautifully about morality and the emotions. And he talked about how, um, how great writing, uh, great novels can, uh, can um, uh, teach us morally by giving us the right emotions. And he said, does not, he quotes some example from a play of the time, does this not elevate a man's sentiments uh, and you know, ennoble his outlook as, as much as any real, history, real event of history can furnish? Does he not privately covenant to copy the fair example? And you know, does he not try to be the same as what we see? And so I think, wow, it's like the opposite of disgust. So disgust is when we see people move down and I just kind of thought, well, what do we feel when we see people move up? And then I read this Jefferson letter, and he completely describes it. He says, we feel a dilation in the chest, an opening in our chest. And if you think about it, think about when you've seen a movie or a story, you hear a story about something really morally beautiful. Where do you feel it? Actually, I'm asking you, Daniel and Tiff, like, what happens when you see something really morally beautiful? Like, what do you feel? You feel a rising in your chest. Yeah, yeah I feel right. warm, Good. And, and, like warmth. Yeah, warm, that's right, warm, rising in the chest. What else? Anything else? Welling of the eyes. You feel... Yep. Um, Sometimes you tear up. Yep. Like an opening. I guess it is like a opening. rising, but an opening that's, of your body. Yep. That's, yep. that's what, Whereas disgust, what's disgust? 
It's a closing. Disgust is all about batten the hatches, guard the body, and elevation is the opposite. It's open up. And so I was doing experiments to see like, oh, wow, this, you know, does this have social implications? Do, do we open up to other people? So I began doing those experiments around 1997, uh, 98, my first, uh, my first years at UVA. And in 1999, Martin Seligman, who's uh, famous for learned helplessness and, uh, and um, uh, you know, forms of cognitive therapy, uh, Martin Seligman, who'd been a professor at Penn, and I'd, I'd met him there, although I hadn't worked with him, he founded the field of positive psychology in 1999. And he put out a call for uh, young investigators, or those who were within 10 years of PhD, because you can't, you can't do age discrimination, but within uh, 10 years of PhD, who are studying strengths and virtues and th and flourishing and things that make life worth living because psychology has so much research on what goes wrong with people we have a whole you know the dsm the diagnostic and statistical manual a whole big book of of problems but we don't have a good taxonomy of strengths and virtues uh and so so uh, he was convening a group of young scholars in Acumal, Mexico. We had to pay our own way. It wasn't a you know, boondoggle trip. We had to pay our own way. Um, but I said, hey, I'm studying this positive emotion that nobody's ever studied. And so he, he accepted, accepted my application. And it was a really fun trip with all these young people who became the, the leading researchers in positive psychology. And so that's how I got it. I started with disgust. And then the opposite of disgust is elevation. That's, that's where I started. And, and so from there, um, you mentioned it a little bit in your intro, but I'd love to know how you ended up at Stern, because when you hear from someone that there is a positive psychologist teaching at a business school, the first question isn't, isn't well, I guess the first reaction isn't, well, of course, yeah. there's usually more of a why. Yeah. And so I'd love to hear for you what that why was that got mm -hmm. you to come to Stern. Sure. So the why was very materialistic. The why was... Um, I was writing my second book. So my first book was The Happiness Hypothesis, and that was my book about positive psychology, which grew out of a course I began teaching at UVA called Flourishing. And it was for undergraduates, and we read all kinds of ancient works and modern works, and, and that led to uh, The Happiness Hypothesis. And then my second book, uh, The Righteous Mind, uh, I began writing as America was getting so horribly polarized by 2004, 2005, of course, we look back on those days, you know, the election of, you know, and then the election of, uh, you know, Barack Obama versus John McCain. I mean, two very decent people. Uh, but our politics was getting so polarized by then. So I, I really began to focus on um, on the psychology of political polarization and division. Uh, and I really tried to understand political conservatives and libertarians. And that really changed me. I, I, I really developed respect. I'd always been on the left. Um, I really developed respect, at least for, for sort of the intellectual components. I mean, there are various problems with, I think, with the Republican Party nowadays that we don't need to get into. But, um, but I have a lot of respect for philosophical conservatism and libertarianism and, and liberalism. Um, so I was writing, I got a contract to write the book. I was writing the book in Charlottesville, and then my wife and I had our second child. And it became clear that uh, at this rate, I will not finish the book by the 2012 presidential election. And if I don't finish this book by, you know, beginning of 20. Have it, if, if I can't get this book out by uh, early 2012, I, I'm crazy. Like that, I, I can't let that happen. I have to do. I have to throw everything else overboard. And not and just coincidentally, the bottom fell out of all of the uh, economic markets in you know, 2008, 2009, and UVA was broke like every other school. And uh, and so I said to the my chairman and then to the dean, "How about if you don't pay me and I don't teach?" 
And they said, <laughs> okay. Um, so basically, I took three semesters of leave without pay. Uh, and I thought, I'm just going to, you know, I'll just, I got a nice advance on the book. I'll just spend the advance. And, I, you know, it, so it was like, I was like rolling the dice. I was saying, okay, I'm all in on this. I've got to commit to this and just make it happen. So I started, so I started writing. And I, but then I thought, you know what? I, I need to be in New York or Washington because, you know, if I get invited, I want to, you know, hit all the media left and right. And if I get invited for a five minute thing on Fox News, like, I'm not going to fly up to New York and leave my kids for, you know, for five minutes. So, I said, okay, we have to go to Washington, New York. And my wife said, I'm not going to Washington, New York. And uh, so, so I was applying to various places in New York, uh, like the Russell Sage Foundation. But then I remember, you know what? I, I gave a talk at Stern in, in 2009, actually. And, and I met this wonderful guy, Bruce Buchanan. He was the head of the Business and Society Program. And I met, you know, I gave a talk on, on applying moral psychology to business ethics, my first time doing that in 2009. And then I thought, why don't I contact Bruce like that would be kind of fun to spend a year at Stern and teach business ethics like yeah I could do that because uh, I have to be you know in New York so that I can you know take the subway up to Rockefeller Center things like that so I called up Bruce and he said you know John I would love that I will make I will make that happen and he you know he moved heaven and earth and he got me uh, uh, the I was the Henry Kaufman fellow in in, in you know business ethics um, for a year and Bruce also found us housing. He found us a nice two-bedroom apartment in Washington Square Village. Uh, so we moved up in, in uh, uh, June of, of 2011. And we just, we loved New York. And uh, I, I grew up in the suburbs. I grew up in Scarsdale back when the city was declining and, you know, bad in a lot of ways. And now here it was, you know, wonderful by, by 2011. Um, so I'm teaching the, the professional responsibility course uh, with, with Bruce in the fall. And... Um, and one day of class, I cut out the newspaper, the business section of the Times. Every story on the front page of the business section was about ethical violations and the stuff we were covering in class. And I brought it to class. I said, look, you know, this stuff is, you know, this is all over the news. This is, you know, this is not some esoteric subject. This really is going to matter to you guys. And the date was, I think, September 17th of 2011. And coincidentally, at that very moment, Occupy Wall Street was starting, you know, a mile south of us. Um, and so from then for, you know, months after that, the big question the world was discussing was morality, business, and capitalism. And what's the alternative to capitalism? Or how can you reform capitalism? And so suddenly it was like, oh, wow, moral psychology, capitalism, Oh, this is actually going to be really interesting, and and my wife and I love New York, and we and we were both thinking, oh, maybe maybe we should you know stay here if we can, and um, and then one day Bruce came in to talk to me to say, John, would you consider staying? And I said, I'm so glad you asked. And we <laughs> did, you know, again, he you know he made it happen, and I had to go through you know a tenure review to 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 get a tenured position. Uh, and then, but uh, but they made they gave me the the Thomas Cooley Professorship of Ethical Leadership, and that's my title now. And and I've been that that since 2012, once the the one year fellowship ran out. I was lucky enough to to take Work Wisdom and Happiness, which is the class that you helped design here at Stern. Uh, what do you think that class has added to the Stern community? So you know, um, we we talk about IQ plus EQ. Right, and I, actually, I'd like to ask the two of you: How much EQ training uh, did you get during your during your Stern time, Tiffany? 
I mean, I'm currently taking uh, managerial skills with Dolly. And okay. yeah. that's been a huge part as well as uh, leadership and organizations with Pettit. So I feel like between those two courses, a good amount. Okay, good. Good. Yeah, our management faculty, the, the, you know, they do some of that. I don't think there's much outside of management, but that makes sense that it's there. And Daniel, how about you? Yeah, I mean, I got really good advice this summer from my manager at my internship that's, who said, essentially, the hard skills we can teach you how to do. Mm -hmm. um, and they're also kind of the baseline. Where you can really elevate yourself in your career is through boosting your emotional intelligence. And so for me, um, I've had the opportunity to take Work, Wisdom, and Happiness. I've had the opportunity to take um, Engage Your Audience this semester, oh, nice. um, managerial skills, leadership, and organizations. So I've really tried to over-index on the emotional side of right. the business school education, which has been wonderful for me. Okay, good, good. So, uh, so at many schools, there's there's not much of it. But then you hear about like Stanford has this famous course called Touchy Feely. At least that's the the unofficial. I forget <laughs> what the official name is. But it's you know it's basically it's you know it's soft skills, uh, and um, and so when I first got here, I was teaching only professional responsibility, and then. Uh, uh, we had a little money. I brought in some visiting fellows who study evolution. I taught a course with Joe Henrik on evolution and business and how an evolutionary lens can show you things about, about group behavior and, and negotiation, all sorts of things. Um, so that was fun. And then I can't remember what the stimulus was, whether we were just talking in a faculty meeting about what was needed. And, um, but I thought, well, why not, you know, why not take that flourishing course from UVA, which was for undergrads? Why not make a version for MBA students? Um, and I, oh yes, I'm sorry, Barry Schwartz, that's it. Barry Schwartz, who's a professor at Swarthmore, retired now, but he's one of the wisest people I've ever known, and he wrote a book on wisdom, and I brought him in for a year as a fellow in 2014 or 2015, and together we designed a course called Work, Wisdom, and Happiness. That's where the wisdom comes in, uh, and so we taught that, and um, and we had a had a good time, and the students seemed to like it. And then after Barry left, I then taught it by myself. So even though I don't, you know, as as you remember, Dan, we didn't. I, we might have had like half a class on wisdom, <laughs> not a lot on wisdom. Um, but that's the well, you know, once you get the title approved and it's in the registration in the registrar, it's hard to get, change the title. Um, but you know, work and happiness, or happiness at work, um, something like that. So there are a few business schools that have that, but not many. And um, it's always and it always fills up, you know, instantly. And uh, and then uh, Mira Devji um, is uh, is an adjunct faculty member who was really interested in, and she co-taught it with me for a couple of years. And she's so good at it now. She teaches her own sections, and it, you know, it always it fills up instantly. We keep it relatively small, you know, thirty-five people. We, we don't want to do it as a lecture class. Uh, it's because, it, as you know, it's very it's very discussion oriented and project oriented. Um, so yeah, that's right. I forgot that was the Barry Schwartz connection got me started, and then once we did it, then it's you know it's just taken off. And I'm going to I'm on sabbatical this year. I'm not teaching at all this year, uh, but I'm trying to write a book on capitalism and morality. But um, but I go back to teaching next January, and then I'll be teaching um, a semester long version for undergraduates, uh, and possibly also a half semester version for MBA students. Um, uh, but, but we'll definitely be offering it, either me or Mira, or we, we might bring in someone else. So anybody listening to this podcast, uh, you can, you sh we, we should be offering a version of it next fall, but definitely next spring. Amazing. So you mentioned this a little bit before, but I'm kind of curious, having been now at, I guess, wow, it's almost 10 years, but yeah. business schools are kind of a really interesting place where 
there's, I think, a little bit more of a diversity of both conservative and liberal mm-hmm. opinion compared to a lot of other academic institutions. Um, and sometimes it provides a really great opportunity to engage with different opinions that you might not have encountered before. But a lot of people, I think, don't take that opportunity to engage. What is some advice from your work that you would give to current and incoming students who do want to try to reach across the aisle but don't necessarily know how? So the first thing I noticed uh, when I came here, you know, because when I came here, I was first just here for a year, and I thought, oh, I'll be like an anthropologist, and I'll study the culture of a business school. But I'll probably hang out more in the psychology department because, you know, that's what I am. And as it turns out, I didn't. I hardly ever went to the psych department, and I spent all my time here. But the first thing I noticed is that, you know, especially like among the faculty, almost everybody's a Democrat, but they're not, uh, people are not polemical or uh, political. Um, that the whole zeitgeist of business is practical. It's getting things done. It's figure out what the problem is, where's their need, find someone who can help you, and I don't care who that person voted for. Whereas in much of the rest of the university, especially in the humanities and the social sciences, um, there's, you know, my analysis is that the traditional goal of a university of, of research and education and knowledge and truth um, is is in conflict now with the goal of, of a, a certain kind of social justice and activism. And that's uh, the, that's true in many university departments. It's, it's overwhelmingly true in the education school, the social work school. But what I noticed in the business school is that it's just a, an incredible amount of energy towards like looking for problem solutions, people, partners, resources. And there's a, um, uh, you know, there's a real attitude of you listen to people and you say, oh, you know, I know somebody who can help you and you hook them up. And, you know, you don't expect anything in return, but maybe someday they'll have something for you. And it's like building all these networks. It's really practical and pragmatic. And I really liked it because it's so tiresome, the politics and the display and the uh, you know, the judgment and the call-out culture is just so tiresome in, in much of the rest of the university. Um, so the first thing to say would be that if you're coming here from, you know, an American undergraduate uh, school or Canadian or British, um, is that the business school is likely, Stern, is likely to be uh, less uh, less PC. I mean, there still is some, uh, and of course, some parts of PC are really appropriate in our progress, but there's not like the, the suffocating um, PC that you have in a lot of the university. So especially those who are not on the left, those who are libertarian or, uh, and of course we're so international and a lot of countries are very socially conservative. Um, so yes, I would agree with you that there's a lot more uh, political and cultural diversity here than in most parts of, a, of the university. Uh, and so uh, my advice would be um, talk to people in small groups or privately um, discussions about politics or you know gender roles or anything like that um, are, re- are, are really risky in the age of social media. So group discussions or a classroom discussion can be very difficult. Um, but one-on-one, almost everybody is sane and reasonable. It's in a group context that anything you say can and will be taken out of context and put up on Twitter and then your life will be ruined. So do be careful about public uh, events, but by all means, talk to people, and they're almost all interesting and reasonable, and they'd be happy to tell you what they think. Um, I guess I would recommend that you read my book, The Righteous Mind, first. Uh, the subtitle is Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion, and it gives you this sort of psychological research to understand um, left, right, libertarian, and especially why we're all so biased and blind, why we have such crippling confirmation bias, motivated reasoning, 
Um, so yeah, if you read The Righteous Mind or just watch some of my videos on YouTube, um, they'll give you some tools to, to talk to people. And the, the best piece of advice I can give um, is, well, you know, do a little research first so that you, you have some sense of what conservatives or liberals believe or what the conflicts are these days and start with some kind of acknowledgement. Uh, start by saying, you know, I'm, I'm on the left and I, I, you know, the left is supposed to be open-minded and, you know, sometimes these days it's not. And if you just start that way, talking to a conservative, you're th that person was like, yeah, wow, yeah, this guy, you know, he's criticizing his own side. Okay, he, this guy's open-minded. I can talk to him. Um, so start by either criticizing something about your own side, and there surely is something, or start by praising something about the other person's side. Um, or, and then to ask a question, like, you know, but it puzzles me why, you know, if you believe this, you know, why don't you also believe this? Okay, and if, you, you know, if it's, because normally we do this, like, gotcha, you guys, you know, you say you believe in sanctity of life, but then you believe in the death penalty, you're <laughs> hypocrites. Okay, you know, that doesn't, that, 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 the discussion's over before it began. Um, so yeah, that would be my advice. <laughs> Um, you mentioned social media, and we are going to touch on that. But first, we're going to take a really quick break. Stern Chats is brought to you by The Person You Mean to Be. The Person You Mean to Be is an inspiring book by social psychologist and NYU Stern professor Dolly Chug on how to confront difficult issues, including sexism, racism, inequality, and injustice, so that you can make the world and yourself better. How do we stand up for our values? How do we respectfully talk politics with those who disagree with us? How can we be better colleagues and avoid being well-intentioned barriers to equality? Dali Chug answers these questions by starting with a look at ourselves. New York Times bestselling author Adam Grant says, finally, an engaging evidence-based book about how to battle biases, champion diversity and inclusion, and advocate for those who lack power and privilege. The Person You Mean to Be is available on Amazon or at dollychug.com. That's D-O-L-L-Y-C-H-U-G-H dot com. And by the way, you can also check out her free monthly newsletter, Dear Good People, at the same website, dollychug.com. And we're back with Professor Jonathan Haidt. I, I do want to talk about social media for a minute because... Okay, let's go there. <laughs> one of the biggest recent stories is Facebook standoff with the Australian government. Um, late last night, and I should note we're recording this on the 23rd, uh, the two struck a deal for Australian news companies to receive some payment in exchange for their content after Facebook had blocked Australian news last week. Um, and in that days-long vacuum, disinformation flourished, whether it was about the COVID vaccine or if it was about 5G. Um, and I feel like this issue sits at the intersection of many of your interests, polarization, social media, business ethics, um, and I'm sure there are mental health implications here as well. And so I'd just love to get your thoughts on the situation in Australia. Sure. So I, I don't have much to say about, uh, about the situation in, in Australia per se. I've been studying social media for a couple of years now uh, because I'm very interested in two of the outcomes. One is there's been a gigantic rise in depression and anxiety uh, that really hit Gen Z. So uh, Americans and, and Canadians and British uh, kids who were born around 1996 and later, um, their rates of depression, anxiety, self-harm, and suicide are, have gone way up since around 2012. Uh, the increases are larger for, for girls and, and young women. 
And until now, MBA students have all been millennials. But right around this year and next year, we're going to be we're beginning to get uh, some some members of Gen Z coming into Stern. Of course, our undergrads are all um, Gen Z, and they are they like everywhere else in the country are having big problems with depression and anxiety. So we could talk about that, but that's furthest away from the from the business applications. Um, the the other area that I've been studying is the effects of social media on democracy and politics, um, because. Uh, you know, in the 1990s, we thought it was the end of history. It's a phrase you might have heard, you know, echoed, you know, it was before your time. But, you know, we thought with the fall of fascism and then communism, um, we thought, uh, Francis Fukuyama wrote a famous essay on this, uh, that we were at the end of history. Not that nothing would ever happen, but that it's now clear that the only direction forward for all countries is liberal democracy. This is the, the ultimate system that um, it's the end point of all developmental pathways. And that's the way it seemed for a while. And then, uh, you know, with the financial crisis, we were less certain about the, uh, you know, the free market democracy part. Like we got to figure out the, you know, the capitalism part of this. Uh, but there's still, you know, and then was, we had the Arab Spring. And it was like, wow, Facebook can bring down dictators. And so I'd say 2010 was sort of the high point of like, wow, social media is democratizing everything and good luck China keeping news out now, you'll never do it. Of course, they've actually been pretty successful at it, but or somewhat successful. Um, but we really thought in 2010 that like, wow, like democracy is gonna flourish everywhere. It's gonna be all over the Arab world. It's gonna be everywhere. Well, beginning in 2015, everything began to go haywire. And we have the rise of illiberal democracies in Europe, you know, in Eastern Europe, especially in India and in, in Brazil. And, and, you know, some would say in the United States or at least tendencies that way. But that's we that's we can get into that. Um, and uh, this is a long way of answering your question about Australia, but I hope it'll be it's interesting to your your listeners that um, there are a lot of reasons why uh, things went haywire, not just in the U.S., but in, in democracies all around the world. Um, and, and, you know, one of the reasons is globalization that's affected everybody. And that has changed the left right dimension from what used to be labor versus capital and the working people versus, you know, the, the company owners. It's changed it to the the anywheres versus the somewheres. The, those of us who are comfortable at, you know, look, NYU is like our motto. You know, what the, we have various mottos, but like we're the most global university. Uh, we're comfortable all over the place. We're not rooted anywhere. Uh, and, we, you know, but we mostly live in New York, London and San Francisco. Um, uh, uh, versus the somewheres, the people who are rooted somewhere. And with globalization, people like us really flourished. And those who are rooted in their communities or have manual labor jobs or factory jobs have really suffered all over the West. So that's one reason um, why there's been such populist uprising. But I think the larger reason, or at least an absolutely essential part of it, is uh, that um, the basic fabric of social life all over the world got re got tweaked, not tweaked, got fundamentally altered between 2009 and 2011. And then the effects happened, the, the effects took a couple years to really shake out. And so you really need to understand it. You, you might remember this, because this was certainly during your time. Um, before 2009, there were various social media platforms. There was Friendster and MySpace, and they, they didn't, some didn't even have a timeline. It was just, here's my room, here's my space. Look, you know, here are the bands I like, and here are the, my friends. Totally not polarizing. Um, but in 2009, Facebook adds the like button and Twitter copies it. And Twitter invents the retweet button and Facebook copies it with share. 
And now suddenly in 2009, both platforms have huge amounts of data on user engagement. And they now are, they changed the newsfeed to be algorithmic based on engagement, which largely means emotion arousing, especially anger. So the platforms really change. Those two platforms especially really change and others copy them. Uh, and by, um, by 2011, they've become very good at spreading outrage. They've become an outrage machine. because now, And now people are getting their news. You know, I, I, I get the New York Times on the weekends, but I, I get so many articles sent to me during the week that I barely read the newspaper. People don't read the newspaper. No, they get things sent to them. And Oh, and this will get us back to Australia because, uh, you know, of course, I mean, so once Facebook and Google, but especially Facebook, once they sucked up all the advertising dollars in the world, practically, um, uh, you know, that now the news media was in big trouble and huge numbers of local newspapers have shut down, which is a tragedy because local news is so important. Um, but they're going out of business and the news media had to adapt and they adapted by more clickbaity headlines and, and user optimization engagement and, and journalism standards have gone, not gone out the window, but they've certainly lowered. Um, so the news media reoriented in 2013, 2012 to 2013 with you know, Upworthy and all kinds of headline testing. And so by 2014, we had this finely tuned outrage machine that linked together social media, uh, cable TV, especially on the right, the left was much less successful at this, but right-wing social media um, and newspapers. Um, uh, all in a tight embrace with Facebook sucking off, you know, a lot of the, you know, the, the advertising money. Um, and then in 2014, the Russians, who had been looking for ways to mess with our democracy for, you know, 70 years, you know, they discovered they don't have to send agents over anymore. They can just sit in St. Peter's, Petersburg and drop stories. And a lot of them were true. Like a lot of the things they dropped weren't even fake. Although a lot of, you know, they experimented with totally fake stories about explosions. And, and they found, oh, wow, we can, you know, we, so, um, so this platform was created in the name of, well, both user engagement and profit um, in 2009 to 2011. It fundamentally changed the news and the information ecosystem by 2013, 2014. And then bad actors uh, and regular people began using it like crazy. Uh, editors were no longer very relevant. It used to be that there were some checkpoints where stories would get checked and there was some quality control. But by 2015, we're getting our news from strangers who send us things that look like newspapers and some of them are newspapers and some of them are just you know propaganda things. So that's why everything seemed to go haywire around the world at the same time. And the, the Brexit vote, the unexpected Brexit vote was the first big event, uh, big, you know, spectacular event. Um, and then uh, the election of Donald Trump, the unexpected election of Donald Trump was the other one. And by that time it was now clear, okay, this is a global thing. This is not just Hungary uh, or, you know, or uh, Poland. This is the, the, the world's two most famous and long lasting, you know, premier democracies are having these populist uh, uprisings. Anyway, so that's what I've been uh, studying, and that's why I think social media is so important. Um, we could also, you know, for those go going into business, and of course MBA students have almost all worked in, in companies, from what I hear, company life is really different now than it was seven or eight years ago, uh, not just because of Slack, but because there used to be a sense that, you know, we're together in this building and there's gossip and politics, but, it, you know, it's in our company. But now young people especially 
are their their twenty four seven brand managers for themselves, and they're constantly thinking about what they're going to post and who posted something and what they're. So our our attention is is drawn away from the people that we're with or working with or related to, and a lot of it's taken up with strangers that really shouldn't matter to us, but we're connected to them and we're all in a prestige economy, struggling to get likes and prestige and and respect, uh, and that's really making it much harder to lead or to or to get cooperation it, you know so all hands meetings for example which were st certainly a staple of silicon valley companies um, those have become so contentious that a lot of companies have stopped it just as most blogs have stopped the comment section because the comments are so nasty okay and there's my rant i've covered all the major areas <laughs> and sins of social media of course it has many benefits too it creates a lot of value but it is causing some problems i i want to stick on this just for a couple more minutes um and I think a big part of this conversation now is about the responsibility. So what companies are responsible? Uh, is, should we be thinking about the sources of the content? So the news platforms, you know, Fox, New York Times, uh, Wall Street Journal, or, or these you know smaller organizations, are we thinking more about the channel? Uh, so the social media companies. And you have studied both. Um, what are your thoughts on, in terms of you know, business, ethic, business ethics and responsibility? Yeah. So, um, I mean, you know, capitalism is so great in part because people are trying to think what other people need. And then if they produce something that the customers don't want, then they'll go out of business. Uh, and as many people have remarked in social media, you know, especially on Facebook, um, the users are not the customers. They're the product and, and the advertisers are the customers. So there is a kind of a market failure there where externalities imposed on teenagers with mental health or imposed on democracies with instability, those are negative externalities that are not priced in. Nobody's paying for them, and so the rest of us suffer. And So there is a failure there. And the traditional um, solution for such failures is regulation. Uh, and so I, we might really need some. Um, the platforms have not shown themselves willing to do much. Um, in th I, I have some friends at Facebook. They've hired a lot of social psychologists. They are working on these problems. They They definitely, you know, it's not as though they're, irresponsible and not thinking they really you know facebook has hired a huge number of researchers they are working on what they call civic integrity um uh but there was also an article on how they were going to work on polarization but they shut that down um so i think they could be doing a lot more but what the way that i think about it is it's not like i mean it'd be nice if the companies were to do things and the things they can do but let's think systemically let's think about changes that would just change the so just as hooking us all up for conversations that are raided by outsiders you know that was a really bad idea but that's what we have like but that changed everything like how can we change uh, change things in that way that will have better results and so um one of the one of the simplest or and most important things we could do to reduce the toxicity and the nastiness and the you know the death threats that are made and the terrible racist things that are said uh, is that a lot of them are said by anonymous people who are using anonymous accounts um, and you know trolls and you know of course their account will get deleted eventually if they keep doing it but then they can just open five more and that's ridiculous we should not be allowing that and uh, I just did a podcast just yesterday with uh, Vasant Dar who's a, a professor here at Stern um, and he had uh, he'd been thinking along the same lines I, I have an article in the Atlantic with Tobias Rose Stockwell on on how social media is making democracies go haywire and we suggest at the end that the company, that the platforms need to verify the identity of, of people who open accounts. 
doesn't mean you can't post anonymously or with a pseudonym, but there has to be a way that you verify that you're a real person in a particular country and you're over and you're 18 or over. And then once you've verified that, and it doesn't have to be with Facebook, it could be with a third party nonprofit. You know, you, you go to Facebook, you create an account and before, and anyone can get an account to see what's going on, fine, you can check it out. But if you wanna post, if you wanna put stuff out there, uh, you have to then get your identity verified, you know, just like blue checks are verified on Twitter. And so, um, so that was what Tobias and I came up with a, a, a year and a half ago. And then I was uh, uh, talking with Vasant yesterday, and he's developed that idea so much further, and he makes it so simple. He says, look, the financial world is incredibly important and incredibly regulated in the sense that um, everything you have to, you know, there are know your customer laws. Banks can't just take money from anonymous people. So to stop money laundering, they have to record every transaction and they have to know who their customers are. Let's take the same thing and apply it to social media. So know your customers, meaning you can't, you know, you have to know who the advertisers are. And I, I believe, I, I'm not read up on this, but I believe Facebook has done a lot to verify, especially for political advertisements. So, you know, that can be done by the, by the platforms. Know your, you know, know your customer. Um, but know your user. And you know, Basant also you know, agrees that uh, the platforms need to have some way of verifying that, you know, who the person is. That way, you know, if you are organizing a terrorist attack, you know, or you're planning, you know, to shoot up a church or a synagogue, um, you know, even if Facebook can't get your identity, the FBI could. Like, they could go through this authenticating agency with a warrant to find out who's the real person behind you know, the, the, behind this, uh, this, this account. Um, so, th so many benefits would come um, if we required some sort of user authentication. That would cut down on a lot of the nastiest stuff. Uh, so ideas like that, I think, could be very, very powerful. The other one that I really want to see um, is to have the platform's code uh, each user um, for various things. So how much does the person use obscenity? Um, that would be a simple thing to code. Um, int integrative complexity. How often does this person have posts that actually report two sides or say, on the other hand, you know, just something about not just like rah, rah, rah. Um, and that could be that. De in fact, I just came across someone who's done that. Uh, the machine learning can, can, uh, can code that. So suppose there were all kinds of dials and you could code up, you know, how uh, I have a, a bottom filter and somebody who, you know, somebody who's above a five out of 10 on aggressiveness or obscenity, um, you know, or all capital letters, whatever. I don't know what they, you'd code on. Uh, I, I don't want to hear from them. Uh, and if it's that I have to individually block each person, no, that's not a solution. But if it's that, if it's that we can all, you know, drown out the trolls, well, guess what? People who want to get followers, want to get influence, they'll have to be less trollish. So I do want to take a second just to talk a little bit about um, what we can do as individuals to make ourselves feel a little bit better. Um, in Work, Wisdom, and Happiness, we talk about cognitive behavioral therapy. And what I've been thinking a lot about is how this past year has been kind of a collective trauma experience. Yeah. Yep. And, and when we reintegrate back into the world, talking about things like exposure therapy as or you know cognitive behavioral therapy as a method to get back to normal life when we've been inside. But even more than that, we've had more control over what we've been able to see in this last year mm -hmm. than probably ever before. We don't have accidental collisions with people yeah. in the outside world. Yeah. And so do you feel like there needs to be some sort of mass collective effort to 
communicate the benefits of something like cognitive behavioral, behavioral therapy or exposure therapy uh, in order to kind of reintegrate us all back into society. Hmm. Um, well, exposure therapy is for people with phobias only. Um, so people have become really, so, uh, so for example, well, this might be kind of weird, but, you know, some people, especially those who are prone to, to obsessive compulsive disorder, just are on that side of the personality spectrum, um, have, have now a really finely cultivated fear of surfaces because we're supposed to avoid, you know, doorknobs and elevator buttons. And even though, you know, we quickly learned that, no, COVID actually is not transmitted that way. You know, for a long time, they would, don't wear a mask, but wash your hands for, you know, for 30 seconds and don't touch your face. You know, all that was backwards. Um, and of course, it's all droplets and masks, not hands. But the point is, a lot of people are going to really be afraid of surfaces and touching and, and have germ phobia. Uh, that could impact social social interactions for, for some people. Um, the, you know, people have made it through this pandemic very differently. And for a lot of people, it's been like, it's been actually fun. You know, for a lot of wealthy people who have been able to, you know, move to Hawaii or Florida. Um, so a lot of people are not traumatized at all. Uh, a lot of people actually have enjoyed it and done very well economically and in and, 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 and work. Well, but of course, most people, and especially people whose jobs cannot be done by Zoom, um, have suffered extraordinarily and the insecurity and the, and the unemployment. Um, so I think um, cognitive behavioral therapy especially would be useful during the, during the tough times, during the bad times, um, as, uh, as when people are depressed. Uh, it's a powerful tool for those especially prone to depression. Um, so I recommend if, if, any, if any listeners uh, are, pr are prone to depression or have been experiencing depression. And for um, late millennials and Gen Z, that's a lot of you. Um, uh, you know, numbers, depending on how you count it, between you know, 20 to 40 percent. Um, are have experienced depression in the last year, uh, so I, I would recommend that you look up cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, NYU has good resources. Uh, NYU makes all kinds of uh, uh, mental health resources available. Um, so yes, we need to be attending to mental health now um, uh, when it's worst, and when we go back, you know, I think a lot of us are hoping for a kind of a roaring twenties kind of thing. You know, the, the many listeners will have heard that. You know the the swine flu the um the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918 killed you know many times more than a half a million where we're at today, um, and you know World War One followed by the biggest pandemic in modern history, uh, you know with so many people dead. Well, people were just raring to go and get out and party, and that was the 1920s. Um, at least you know I'm not a sociologist of that, but I've heard several academics say that. Um, so I'm hopeful that, you know, as we come out of this, as the vaccines, which, you know, are 100% effective against death and severe illness, it's extraordinary. You know, so people, we shouldn't be banding around the 95% effective against infection because uh, people don't know what that means. But if you say it's 100% effective against dying from COVID, like, wow, that's amazing. Um, so, uh, you know, so I think there, there could be a, you know, a lot of euphoria. Um, but I think especially young people, uh, you know, more so undergrads than MBA students, um, will have really lost a lot of, of, of social development time. Um, you know, my, my daughter just started middle school, my son just started high school, and they're so disappointed that they don't get to make friends. There's no way to make friends within a Zoom classroom. So I think we're going to see a lot of suffering and, and, and slowed down development socially and, and you know, cognitively or educationally especially in younger people, not so much in MBA students.
Well, I, I want to end on a high note and just say that this has been a wonderful conversation uh, for me, Tiffany. I think you've enjoyed this too. Absolutely. Um, and oh, great. Well, to, and I have too, and and I'm, I'm so glad to be a part of Stern, and, and uh, I hope uh, Sternies or potential Sternies uh, who hear that uh, get a sense of all that's going on here and how fun it is to be in Lower Manhattan. Uh, I think we have the best location of any business school in the world. Um, and so, yeah, it's a pleasure to talk with you. Yeah, I'll agree with that. And we will keep an eye out for an upcoming book from you next year. So good yes. luck working on that. Three stories about capitalism, the moral psychology of economic life. Thank you so much, Professor. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Tim. Thank you. Thank you.